This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm happy to be here. Um, it's kind of uh, interesting timing to be giving this talk a week before the election. Um, there are quite a number of political observations in here because uh, the data actually are there on um, some of the political divisions. So um, we're going to be facing those head on. Um, and uh, just to give you a little bit of the background, I gave this talk originally to the California Conference of Directors of Environmental Health at their um, annual meeting uh, almost uh, just slightly over a year ago now. Um, I changed the focus for tonight to really uh, emphasize the climate aspects because the original talk included uh, multiple different types of uh, science denial. Um, and I did this because I was interested in it, not really because, you know, not because I was funded to do it, but because I um, really was curious what, what is out there and found that there's a quite a rich science. Um, I'm not a sociologist, but I really uh, find sociology interesting. And so there's a lot to, um, I think, to learn in this area and a lot of work, great work that's been done. And so just to start out uh, with this quote, you know, I think that one of the key changes that's happened over time is it used to be that scientific issues tended to be addressed, um, you know, in, in rarefied atmospheres, uh, either among scientists or um, presentations from, sci you know, by scientists to policymakers. Um, now that's not necessarily the, the way that science is handled. There's a lot of uh, debate in the public sphere. Um, and so, you know, and I put up a bunch of uh, examples of the public sphere and the, the ways that um, the places where strong opinions on science are being um, expressed. And I think that part of the issue here is that science is just not well suited to being um, debated in, in this type of environment where uh, things are just in short little sound bites or a few words or sentences, um, because a lot of the concepts are quite complex. But um, the other thing just to acknowledge at the beginning is that science also, you know, is, there's, there is uncertainty in every field of science. That is what science is in some ways, is a, you know, um, the generation of hypotheses and then the gradual accumulation of evidence supporting the hypothesis or refuting the hypothesis. And there are always scientific disagreements. Um, those become rarer and rarer as the consensus um, sort of coalesces around uh, one perspective, but they never completely go away. And so you can always find scientists who will um, disagree with the, the, the um, prevailing um, wisdom of the scientific community, which is also something that is just always going to be the case in science. Um, and um, so the, the issue around communication is that people have to accurately perceive how much scientific uncertainty is really warranted by the available evidence. In some cases, 
there's a lot of scientific uncertainty that's warranted. In other cases, very little. Um, and in the case of climate change, uh, extremely little. But stakeholders don't necessarily see that. Um, so when you're looking at climate change, you know, the famous hockey stick uh, graph here on the right, one of the uh, ways that science can be considered, uh, you know, to be uncertain is, is that there's imprecision. There's, you know, issues with of uncertainty around measurements, uncertainty because of the sample size, the design of the study, um, extrapolation from one data set to uh, um, the broader issue, uh, issues of chance, or uh, the fact that you're extrapolating to the past or the future, or both. All of those are just, um, you know, factors uh, of scientific uncertainty. But there's also the uncertainty through conflict, um, which is when there are, um, you know, there's this sort of these warring experts. So you'll it's important to think about where the imprecision or the where the uncertainty lies. Is it created through conflict or is it created because of the actual um, uh, is, actual issues in the science? And so to get to that, I'm going to jump right in to um, uh, some some statistics here. I'm sure that our squared values are not typically necessarily what we would jump into on the third slide, but the different principal components that that affect um, scientific uncertainty in this particular study uh, that was done and published in 2017, they found that there are three main factors. How precise the science is seen as being, the temporal distance, and that is how far into the past or the future in the case of climate change are you extrapolating, and um, the, the degree of mathematical abstraction. So in other words, is it complicated mathematically? Um, and these researchers found that those different principal components um, explained in, you know, in their, in their aggregate, most of the different ways that people viewed whether science was reliable. And they, they looked at different ways of, of viewing science. One is how, how high is the quality? How high is the social benefit of the science? Should that science be funded? Would that science have an influence on me, on my personal life? Um, and um, and the final one is uh, is hidden on my screen. Oh, right, the composite variable, which looks overall at 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 the these predictors. Um, and it found interestingly that for Republicans, because they looked at people's political affiliations, precision was by far the most important factor. If the science was seen as being very precise, um, it, uh, the, the composite, um, you know, it explained 85% of the variance in terms of how people who identified as Republican viewed um, the value of that science. Um, in the case of Democrats, there was nothing actually overall that um, explained as much of that variance. You only got in the composite to up to you know, about 50, you know, about half of the variance being explained. Um, 
But mathematical abstraction, so complex mathematics was the largest predictor. Um, but as you could see um, that, you know, if there is a, a perceived imprecision of the science, that might affect um, whether, uh, for example, you know, it, um, you know, eighty-two percent of of Republicans felt that that science uh, should not, you know, does not deserve as much funding, whereas that was much less of an issue with um, Democrats. So you can see that right from the beginning, politics actually um, and worldview um, just explains a lot of why uh, of how we think about science. Um, so. Then, you know, a lot of the underlying issues here um, go beyond just whether there's issues of precision or extrapolation or mathematical complexity to the science, but goes to this issue of motivated cognition. In other words, are we really that as rational as we think we are? Or do other factors uh, such as our, you know, our moral views and affiliations and motivations influence how we perceive science? And my argument is going to be that um, that none of us are as rational as we would like to think we are, that we all have some level of motivated cognition um, and that, um, you know, to some, some, for some people, it may be more than others, but uh, even those people who see themselves as 100% rational um, are motivated to some degree um, by other factors when they sort of filter their views of the science and that it's just sort of how we are as humans. And one, one example here, and this is, um, this is actually very old um, from a number of different uh, papers that it were pulled together showing that people perceive risks differently. Um, and if you're, you know, no matter what risk you talk about, whether it's the risk of climate change, the risk of nuclear war, the risk of crossing the streets or of going skiing, um, all of these risks are perceived through certain different filters. Some of those filters have to do with the hazard itself. Is it something that we're, that feels familiar? or unfamiliar, catastrophic or not catastrophic, natural versus man-made, uh, et cetera. Some of them have to do with who we are. Um, and in fact, white males uh, in general tend to see almost any risk as lesser than um, you know, compared to uh, non-white people and females. Um, and then scientists tend to see risks as lesser than non-scientists in general. Uh, who you're employed by also makes some difference. And then there are these um, issues of trust, uh, which are very important in areas like the field of environmental justice, where there's a history um, that breeds, you know, um, correctly in, in many ways, mistrust um, that, that uh, can also increase uh, the, the perceived risk. Um, so all of these factors are things that we all are subject to and are things that we just sort of need to be aware of in terms of uh, potential filters. But going specifically into science denial, which is a little different than risk perception. Risk perception is sort of, you know, it's almost a continuum 
Science denial that I want to talk about now is the I don't believe in global warming. I, you know, I'm uh, I'm a climate skeptic kind of uh, pers perspective. Um, and it's not just climate. There's uh, you know issues around vaccines, issues around uh, evolution, and many other issues that come up. And there are also this cranky uncle website actually is um, designed to sort of uh, it. We may talk about this later to appeal to um, people who are skeptical about climate change, but it actually is. Um, uh, you know, it is is about the science of climate change. So it's an effort to uh, speak to people who are climate skeptics. So let's talk about one, some of these uh, reasons, theories for why people really don't um, believe in climate change. Well, some of it is just a general distrust in science. Um, and some of it goes back to what I said before about this perception of scientific uh, uncertainty or disagreement. Um, and some of it probably has to do with differential exposure. In other words, you know, here's a little clip from Fox News um, about global warming being over. Um, and these, you know, so depending on what you consume in the media, that may uh, have an effect. And the other um, issue that has been associated with climate denial is just general conspiracist ideations. So people who tend to respond in surveys that they, um, you know, believe in UFOs, that they believe in, um, you know, uh, different kinds of cult conspiracies and so forth, um, also tend to also uh, potentially believe in um, or doubt climate change and uh, think of it as being a sort of a conspiracy, a Chinese hoax, as has been said uh, by someone. Um, so these are all potential theories, but, um, and the other thing that you do hear about quite a bit, um, is the, the concerted public relations effort that has gone into, uh, questioning climate change and the enormous amount of money that's been spent by, uh, or, you know, the, the, various companies and um, other entities that have supported groups that question climate change since the late 1990s all the way until pretty much the present. Um, so again, another issue that we may wanna talk about later. But I wanna actually question some of those things because there are now a number of studies that have tried to look at this issue. And, and, and have found that actually they may not be as, those, those last couple slides may not be quite as important as I would have initially thought. Um, and they, the uh, two different ways of thinking about this are, you know, are people passive aggregators? In other words, are we, you know, is it that there are motivated interest groups like ExxonMobil that are providing misinformation that are then affecting people's views? Or is there a, a culturally motivated public that is that is consuming and demanding information to, uh, you know, that aligns with their views? And um, 
and there is some evidence for the that the motivated public model may actually have some support. Um, and one of the things that's very interesting and I found surprising is that the that a, a lack of education is not at all correlated in any study with climate denial or science denial in general. Um, lack of scientific literacy, not correlated. Um, and in fact, it, the, the studies that have looked at this have, if anything, found that, that the more scientifically literate you are, the more likely you are to be um, even more strongly um, in a, you know, science, well, more strongly in whatever position you're in. But uh, if that happens to be climate denial, um, you, you are very, very strongly there, even if your uh, scientific comprehension is very high. Um, and similarly, the misinformation itself has not um, been found to necessarily um, shift people. Um, or if it does, it shifts people in a sort of a selective way. Uh, so why would that be? So it, some of the reasons may be, um, and the, the next few slides are all different theories um, about why people who are actually pretty scientifically literate and pretty sophisticated um, would decide to uh, wholeheartedly deny the science on climate change. So there's this issue of system identification. Um, the, the perspective that, uh, you know, we believe that people are, you know, tends to go with strong feelings of patriotism, a feeling of not wanting to um, do anything that would undercut the American way of life, um, there, that would reduce American competitiveness, that would reduce our political independence, that would reduce our resources. Um, and so there is that, that um, perspective. Um, so it's an identification with our current political system, our, our capitalist economic system, and um, our you know, sort of current, current structures and way of life in our, in our neighborhood, our community, or our country. Um, some other... Um, ideas are uh, around more, so this this sort of builds on that, around um, ideologies. In other words, do you believe in small government? Do you believe in a free market? If you very strongly believe in those ideologies, um, obviously there's some conflict with um, uh, climate change, at least on the surface. And um, are you part of a group or a team that has one view or another on that topic? And unfortunately, climate change has become a group affiliation issue. And I'll show more about that shortly. Um, so if, if you do, your sense of belonging will be associated with, um, you know, being uh, affiliated with the positions of your group. Um, there also are some other theories and they're different, um, but it's important because people with, for example, this um, 
this motivation, disposition, motivated cognition, which is basically that the information itself is threatening, um, these people would be persuaded in a different way than the people in my last couple slides. Um, these are people who are maybe at some level extremely anxious about the implications of climate change, either for themselves or their kids, depressed about it, feel like it is overwhelming. They may suffer from solastalgia. Um, I misspelled it, Robin caught me on that, which is a, you know, sort of missing of uh, the, the world of their youth and the world that they've known. Um, and and feeling some you know deep seated sadness about that, um, and I think many of us feel that to some degree around climate change. Um, and you know, dirt right now in co you know in the COVID situation, people are already feeling anxious and depressed. Um, with these wildfires going on, people are feeling anxious and depressed. Some people deal with those kinds of. Um, uh, stimuli through denial. And um, that's, it's a coping mechanism that some people use. And um, if that's the motivation for science denial, that would uh, call for a different type of, of approach to communication. So um, that all of this is just to say all skepticism isn't the same. Um, and so when um, researchers studied that, they also found that not all specific types of science skepticism is the same. And this, uh, this talks about climate skepticism, vaccine hesitancy, and um, concerns about genetically modified organisms. Um, and it shows that the only one of these that is affected in any way by a political ideology is climate change. In fact, you'll find, and I'll show you uh, this in a couple other slides, that vaccine skeptics, uh, GMO skeptics fall almost equally on diff, you know, whatever end of the political spectrum. Um, religious identity is mildly related to all three of these. Um, and the more religiously orthodox you are, no matter what religion, it's a bit more related to vaccine uh, hesitancy. But there is this concept of moral purity. I won't get into that more right now. And uh, um, the issue of low faith in science that have been linked to um, vaccine hesitancy. Um, I, I, it's, um, the, the the vaccine hesitancy also there there's some science showing that there's this sort of yuck factor of uh, that the sort of the sanctity of the body and anything that um, disrupts that that some people can't get get over um, and so there are, it's a very different kind of phenomenon so you can't lump all different kinds of science denial together they're not the same. Um, so here's an example of um, vaccine skeptics versus climate skeptics. And this, this is, oh, just to, uh, the next few slides are all by this group from Yale Law School. And this is a really interesting project. So if you're interested afterwards, Google the Cultural Cognition Project. Um, you'll find a number of working papers and a lot of uh, published studies and it's fascinating reading. This is really what they study is 
um, science communication and um, in our culture. And, and so when you, uh, they recruited vaccine skeptics and, um, and so they looked at what percent of people ag agree, or actually th th this was a broader study, I'm sorry. I forgot which one I was talking about. This one, they they were doing a large study of the general population to see whether people agreed that the health benefits of obtaining generally recommended childhood vaccinations outweigh the health risks. And so overall, about 75% of people agreed with that. And then of those, um, you know, equal numbers uh, essentially thought that, uh, Global warming was caused by humans, caused naturally, but not by humans, and that no, warming wasn't occurring at all. Um, this difference here was not statistically significant. So really, um, you know, vaccine skeptics and climate skeptics were not the same people. Same thing with evolution. Um, about roughly equal number of people who are vaccine skeptics um, are you know, believe in evolution and don't believe in evolution. So that they're not, um, those, those types of science denial are not correlated. And then if you look, uh, this is another of their studies where they looked at a whole bunch of different issues. And this is a, a lot on one slide, but this shows you here. In this slide, they looked at, they divided people into liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans. And they asked people to rate how, from extremely high risk to no risk at all, um, what, uh, what was the risk of global warming. They also had science intelligence on this x-axis. So that means that the people who are just, are more sophisticated in terms of their science, um, uh, expertise and background. Um, they had a few questions. I can't remember right now what they were. They sort of got, got to whether people were sort of sophisticated about what science is. Um, and they found that conservative Republicans, it didn't matter how sophisticated you were about science, um, the, the um, perception of global warming was fairly low risk. Um, maybe even went slightly down as they got more sophisticated about science. Liberal Democrats, um, big difference. Uh, same kind of issues here with gun possession, uh, with this inverse relationship with um, scientific in, uh, sophistication. And uh, on uh, fracking, uh, you saw the same kind of split um, and you didn't see it at all for, you know, how risky are artificial food colorings? How risky is exposure to radio waves from cell phones or genetically modified food or uh, high voltage power lines, artificial sweeteners, nanotechnology, not, no political split. Um, so uh, this, uh, this kind of split that we see for, for climate change and for a few other issues doesn't have to be the case, but it, it, certainly is on these particular issues. And it's just interesting that there's been this kind of uh, political party split on, on some issues, but not others. Um, and so why might that be? Well, so th there's the issue of solution aversion, which is 
you know, in many problems and climate change is certainly one is generally paired with politicized solutions. The Green New Deal is one example from, you know, that's quite recent. Um, and so debate on the science may be debate more on, you know, do they or do people or do they not like the solution? Um, and if people are really debating on the solution, but pretending to debate on the science, then educating on the science doesn't work. Um, and this has been supported in a number of different ways. Um, some studies where they've presented um, different kinds of solutions to you know, a more free market friendly solution versus a government regulation solution. And then asked uh, both Democrats and Republicans how much they agree with climate change science. And as the solution shifts from free market friendly to government regulation, Republicans are more likely to respond uh, that they don't believe in the science of climate change. This was different groups so that it wasn't uh, the same people responding um, because they can't, couldn't really ask people to reassess their views of climate change. So they, um, and I'll show you a little bit more on this in the next slide. But they also found that um, uh, if you took away the political parties and just looked at how much of a free market ideology do people have, you see again, this big split with the free market friendly solution versus the government regulation solution. And so a lot of the Democrat versus Republican may actually be explained, not by the political party, but by the ideology. Um, so getting down to the ideology, I'm trying to peel away some of these layers here. And I think in some ways this is the core, uh, at least in my view which is that um, people's ideology tends to fall somewhere in this box between being more hierarchical versus egalitarian, more individualistic versus communitarian. Um, and most people tend to fall somewhere in here. Um, and, and it does, fall out, you know, right now in our country, according to political party, uh, to a significant degree. But also, um, even within political parties, people distribute across these, these um, different perspectives, you know, whether people sh things should be distributed equally versus differentially, according to merit is the that not really said here. Um, but that's that's what I guess you know a, a high, somebody who's more hierarchical in terms of their thinking would say, um, versus uh, you know let people secure the conditions of their own flourishing without interference or assistance versus social interests taking precedent over individual interests, um, and so let's look at how that affects this issue. Um, so this chart again, is like, you know, the, the perception of the risk of climate change. Um, red, the red bars are high risk, yellow, moderate risk, green, it's not risky. The more hierarchic your worldview, the more likely you are to not really see climate change as a risk. 
the more egalitarian your worldview, the more likely you are to see it at least as a moderate, if not a high risk. Um, and then here, slightly less predictive, but still important, more communitarian sees climate change as a much higher risk than the people who are more individualistic. And so this, um, you know, really this, this, these two axes, egalitarian versus hierarchic, communitarian versus individualistic worldview may turn out to be even more sort of fundamental and at the root of the issues compared to like the political party and some of the other things that I just went through. Um, and so for example, let's go back to this solution aversion idea um, presenting two different case studies. This is a reading that were pre presented in this study. One was a news, you know, quote, sort of pseudo newspaper article about scientific panel recommends anti-pollution solution to global warming. And the other, this went to the other half of the uh, participants, scientific panel recommends nuclear solution to global warming. And then they divided people up um, by asking them a whole bunch of questions to whether they're more communitarians, these red lines, versus individualists, the blue lines, and then um, you know gave a gave half the communitarians and half the individualists these each of these uh, different readings, and found that. Um, you know, the people who are communitarians saw climate change, the, the controls were um, not given anything to read. Um, the people who are communitarians, their concerns about climate change went up after reading the anti-pollution and went up, but to a lesser degree after reading about the nuclear solution, showing that there was some solution aversion maybe uh, among the communitarians to the nuclear solution. And here, the reverse happened with the people who are very individualistic with a, just a plummeted to almost no risk from climate change to people who, you know, after reading the anti-pollution solution versus uh, somewhat uh, more uh, positive response after the nuclear solution. And similar with the hierarchical uh, versus egalitarian, but um, less of a dramatic difference. Um, certainly overall, I, so in other words, the readings didn't make as much difference in, in the group, in those groups, but the, the, uh, uh, their worldview certainly did, as you can see, huge, um, statistically significant differences. So let's get to recommendations. Having heard all of that, um, you know, I think that the, the basic messages here is that there's a lot of different issues in, in terms of um, why people may um, deny climate science. And those issues um, vary to some degree, and, and then there are also some themes. Um, and so if you are trying to reduce or neutralize the, the likelihood that people will polarize as they listen to information about climate change. There are a number of different things you can do, and some of them you can do right up front to the extent that you can 
you know, choose your messengers that may be helpful um, to the extent that you can make a personal connection with someone that's much more helpful. Um, and then the way you frame solutions matters, as we saw um, things that are more free market versus uh, less free market, for example, can be very important. Um, recognizing that risk perception does differ and that you know we all actually have our own sort of biases may, I don't know, I find it, it just, it humbles me a little bit. Um, because the, to the extent that you can be um, uh, a little, you know, not, can be a little bit humble about approaching these conversations, it helps a lot. Um, and then avoiding having conversations on social media just doesn't work. Um, that's just not the place or the way to engage. Um, and then to the extent that we can get, can sort of draw out communitarian and egalitarian sentiments in people, um, that, that actually probably does more than anything else to affect the way that they think about the science. Um, and everybody, even the most hardcore, um, you know, individualist uh, hierarchist has some um, you know, sense of community and some uh, sense of, uh, you know, equality somewhere in them. And so there are ways to, to sort of bring those out. Um, but here's some of the, the things to, uh, the approaches in the conversation itself. Uh, most important is to not um, accuse people, not call people names like anti-science, don't be sarcastic or flippant um, to the extent that people feel like you're talking down at them or that you um, think that they're dumb or anything like that. It just will immediately, that ends the conversation right there. Um, and instead, listen, uh, probe for their concerns, try to understand their motivations, try to figure out where they're coming from. You know, is it really that they're deeply anxious about climate change and they, it just terrifies them and they don't really wanna think about it? Um, that's very different. Or are they just deeply, deeply believers in, you know, um, in, in individualism and they have a hard time really thinking about the sort of the common good and the community. And if so, then there might be ways to evoke that motivation. Try to be non-judgmental and try to in any way connect, you know, that you're on the same team. You're not on the other, other team, whatever that other team may be. So those are some, those are my pieces of advice. And I'm sure that the, um, the rest of the panel has a lot more wisdom to add to this, but um, I, uh, that's all I have for, for now. And I'd like to um, thank everyone and turn it back to the discussion. It's um, an honor to get to introduce all these wonderful panelists. And I'm really excited to hear what you all have to say. And Gina, I'd also like to thank you for such an informative talk. I think you gave everyone a lot to think about, and I think that's going to provide a really good jumping off point. So 
I'll start by introducing our first panelist, Greg Dalton, who is the executive producer and host of the Climate One podcast and radio show on NPR stations around the country. He created Climate One in 2007 after going to the Arctic and having a scary, intriguing, and life-changing journey to the top of the world. Our next panelist is Dr. Connie Roser-Renoff, and she is a research associate at the George Mason Center for Climate Change Communication and is an adjunct faculty member at Yale School of Public Health. Her research focuses on understanding how diverse audiences interpret and respond to information on climate change. And finally, we have Gina Solomon, whom you've all just heard from and will get to hear more from. So to start off the panel, uh, each of you is chosen because of your stellar leadership in the area of effective communication around climate science. Your organizations all bring different styles and different focuses to this conversation. And so I think we'd all love to start by hearing each of you briefly describe your organization or work and who your target audience is and what the ideal outcomes of your projects are. And I think we're gonna start with um, Connie since uh, there's some slides prepared for you. Great. So I'm at the Center for Climate Change Communication at George Mason University, which um, Ed Maybach and I started in 2007 to identify ways to engage the public with the issue of climate change. We don't directly uh, communicate with the public, we communicate with the communicators uh, to help them identify more effective strategies for engaging people with the issue of climate change. Our work started as a collaboration with the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication, Climate Change in the American Mind, which you can see there on the left. Those are biannual surveys of Americans' um, attitudes, beliefs, behaviors related to climate change, policy preferences. We've been tracking those, um, those variables since 2007. And probably the most important thing that has come out of that is an audience segmentation, um, Global Warming Six Americas, which identifies six different discrete groups that have different values and beliefs and attitudes. And much of what Gina had to say relates to the values in those different groups and how we can most effectively talk to people in those different groups based on their characteristics. A lot of the other work at the center has focused on identifying um, communicators who can cut across the political polarization in this country on climate change. So Climate Matters is a program in which, um, in collaboration with Climate Central, we provide materials to TV weathercasters that help them localize the threat of climate change. That program has recently expanded into um, providing materials for journalists in the newsrooms as well. The Climate and Health Program enlists uh, medical professionals to be communicators to the public on climate change. The 4D project of which Cranky Uncle is one small piece. Uh, Gina showed a slide of, of the Cranky Uncle with, uh, there's some really very clever cartoons there, um, is about debunking climate uh, denialism. Republic N is run by a former uh, Republican congressman who was actually voted out of office because of his support for climate action. And he mostly targets young Republicans in colleges 
to engage them with the issue of climate change by providing conservative solutions. Again, going back to the solution aversion that Gina talked about. And finally, uh, uh, park rangers, because when people go to the national parks, the park rangers can talk to them about the local impacts, what we see in the parks and make it real and solid to people. We've, we've, we've worked with a lot of other organizations besides these, but these are the primary programs. And Kim, if you show the next slide, um, we issue reports on everything that we do. This is just a sample of some of the recent work. And if you go to our website or to Yale's website, you will find um, lots and lots of reports on uh, what people in the US think and feel and believe about climate change and also suggestions on strategies for engaging them. Thank you so much for that awesome answer to that question. Um, Greg, would you like to go next? And again, sure. the question is um, just asking you to briefly describe your work, um, who your target audience is and what are some of the ideal outcomes of your project? Sure. Well, it's an honor to be here with such esteemed professors. Um, I am not a scientist, though I do have the privilege of uh, interviewing and talking with many scientists on the Climate One, which is a radio show on uh, public radio stations, as well as as a podcast. And um, I'm pleased to follow you know, Connie because the, the work at George Mason and Yale really is the gold standard for really segmenting and understanding um, how people think about, uh, about climate change. I've been doing this for 13 years. I went to the Arctic in 2007 on a Russian icebreaker with some scientists and had this epiphany when science, uh, climate change became that abstraction that, that we heard about and became sort of a lived experience walking on the tundra and seeing it, uh, made it made it real for me at a time when most people weren't thinking about it. Al Gore's film had come out um, and there was an IPCC report, but Climate change in 2007, Katrina had happened, but it still seemed to be mostly in the future. And it was very abstract for most people. Um, and now it's, you know, um, I, I came back personally scared and, and, and intrigued and like created Climate One with the goal of getting people to talk about the causes, consequences, and solutions. Because the, you know, the George Mason and Yale research tells us Americans are concerned about it. But people don't talk about it very much, although I think there is an ex exception where San Francisco is one of the places where where uh, people do talk about it more, perhaps because of uh, UCSF and, and Climate One. But for the most part, people are concerned about it, but they don't hear other people talking about it. there's sort of this socially constructed silence and self-censorship that can happen around climate. It's like sex and politics. I'm not sure if you want to bring it up. It's a downer. So we're trying to, to burst that and get people talking about climate change while there is a real impetus for, for action. We need action, action, action. You know, we follow Catherine Hayhoe who says like, you know, you know, we need to talk about it. If you don't uh, talk, uh, talk about it, why would you care? If you don't care, why would you act? Uh, so we believe the conversation is the point to have the conversation. And a lot of what Dr. Shapiro mentioned was very much in line with what we try to do is drawing people out, meet them where they are, um, and do those sorts of things. So our goal is not to convert, uh, to persuade. Our goal is to deepen uh, understanding and connect the personal and the systemic. 
because we all hear about what can I do? Change your light bulbs, go vegan, go electric, um, and talk about those things, but also think about the systems, systems level. And we're not educated or trained to think about systems level problems or solutions. You know, as George Lakoff says, liberals problems as they went to college, right? Um, and um, um, sorry to say that in an academic setting, but you know, this is the way we're the way we're uh, the academy is or, is organized. The way we're, we're educated is not to think about these cross sector. Um, and we try to speak to the to the whole person um, because a lot of the climate conversation uh, literally started. It's that abstraction that we heard about. It's it's literally chemistry and physics in outer space. How relatable is that? And so it's a lot of it's really up here. And so when I try to reach people on Climate One, both the guests and the audience, try to bring the, reach the whole person, the brain, the heart, the gut, their wallet. Um, all, all of them, and to try to understand, you know, that, that get at that risk perception. I was really interested in the risk perception there about education and race and gender. That was new to me. I think it was um, fascinating that I'd like to, you know, incorporate in my work. So that's what Climate One is. It's a radio show and podcast trying to connect leaders. Uh, we did our first climate psychology program, I think, at least five years ago. So we're often kind of ahead of, you know, psychology and the behavioral sciences have kind of come into the climate conversation after the natural and earth sciences. I'm, I'm happy. I think it's really important with Dr. Solomon's presentation that this kind of conversation, framing it as a health issue. So I'm excited to be here and, and talk some more. Thank you. And I couldn't agree, agree more about the importance of conversations. And it makes me especially thankful that we, we have this space and this panel to have these conversations. So uh, thanks again to everyone that's uh, part of the panel. Uh, Dr. Solomon, I know you've already been introduced and you've talked a little bit about your work, but if there's anything else that you'd like to add, I'd love to give you that space right now. Uh, well, Greg mentioned uh, Hurricane Katrina, and that's how I got uh, involved in the climate work. I was working on um, other issues, uh, occupational health issues, uh, environmental uh, toxics issues uh, for many years. And um, after Hurricane Katrina, I, I was pulled into um, doing some uh, environmental investigations in uh, the city of New Orleans at the request of community groups. Um, we, we did you know, a number of different studies there, testing for mold, uh, for contaminants in the sediment, for contaminants in drinking water. But, um, and, and so it was an extension of my previous work, but it also was just a hello introduction to um, the, you know, the reality of climate change. Um, it was impossible to go into the city of New Orleans and, and see what had happened there and not see our future. Um, and so it shifted the way I thought about everything really um, made me move climate change much more uh, to the center of, uh, of my work. And, um, and, and uh, a number of my other projects have been around um, uh, disaster preparedness, disaster response, and community resilience, um, you know, everything from, um, you know, getting uh, involved in, in the, the Deepwater Horizon uh, cleanup, um, BP oil spill cleanup on the Gulf Coast, doing uh, assessments of the communities there to um, 
more recently the work on wildfires in California and um, and and the work to try to um, help. And right now, one of my big projects is around farm workers and um, their particular susceptibility to climate change and ways to to help um, increase resilience in in communities so that they won't be. Um, so disproportionately impacted in the future. Uh, thank you, Gina. And thank you again, everyone, for giving us more context on your organizations. The next thing that I'd love to ask you all is, um, we've known that the climate is changing for some time, yet we haven't been able to convince everyone that this is a serious issue. Dr. Solomon, in your talk, you mentioned numerous strategies for communicating climate science, but I'd love to hear each of your personal perspectives on what you think needs to be done to get everyone on the same page about climate change. And where do you see your work fitting into that? And I think we can kind of just popcorn it, whoever would like to go can speak. I think that the overall strategy, what I would like to see happen is the, the kind of interpersonal communication uh, that, that uh, Gina was talking about that we have now in the US, um, I'm just looking at the data from April of, of 2020 and the Global Warming Six Americas audience segmentation. We have 54% of the American public in the two most concerned segments, the alarmed and the concerned. We have only 7% of the population in the dismissives, the people who think this is a scientific hoax. People are afraid to talk about climate change because they think there are a lot more skeptics out there than there actually are because they're very <laughs> loud. Um, and there is roughly a quarter of the population that's there in the middle. Um, 30, 35% of the population maybe um, uh, that is persuadable. And they don't think that this, that this is much of a risk. They're inclined to think it's real, but it doesn't affect me. It's something for people in developing countries. It's for other species. It's something in the future, but I have to worry about my rent. I have to worry about um, right now, I have to worry about COVID. I have to worry about my job and my mortgage. And you're asking me to worry about polar bears. And people do not see it as a threat to them personally. As they come to understand the local impacts, and we are understanding those more and more, people become engaged. And if those of us who are concerned talk to our friends and family, and, and uh, people in our social networks and express the concern we have, we can move those middle segments up into the more engaged segments. And then the dismissives can go to their graves believing that it's a, it's a scientific hoax. If we get enough people engaged then and demanding the kind of policy changes that we need, we need systemic change in order to really address climate change, then society can change around the dismissives. Um, there are things we can do to talk to them, but if we never persuade them, it's not the end of the world. Um, and what that's what I would like to do is engage those middle segments um, in order to get um, the kind of consensus we need among the public to, to uh, really enact effective policies to transition to clean energy and a sustainable 
uh, way of living. Yeah, I think that's right. I think we sometimes pay too much attention on that 7%. It used to be 10%. Now it's 7 uh, So many conversations, you know, it will immediately start with, oh, the deniers are the, you know, and they are very loud and they have a disproportionate amount of power. Um, but uh, it, it's very easy. A lot of the people I interview, um, there's a lot of othering that happens. That you know, China should change. The Republicans should change. Oil companies should change. Texas should change and be more like California. Everybody has a favorite uh, group to point to that is obstructing that should do more. And we have this bias that I'm virtuous and I've done my part. You know, if I, I have a Prius and I've done this and I've done that, I'm you know I'm virtuous and well intended. And those other people are are blocking it. Well, I don't know that that you know Connie. Mentioned in the 54% or so, are they doing everything uh, that they that they can? Um, you know, there's a reason why uh, Sunrise Movement occupied Nancy Pelosi's office, you know, a couple of days after the midterm elections, because they didn't trust the Democrats to really put climate at the top of the agenda. Um, and they've, they've had to be to be pushed. So I think we want to, you know, talk about, um, you know, what people who are, you know, <laughs> convert on, you know, sort of uh, people who are on the bandwagon, can they do more? I also think the conversation we we need to be have an honest and authentic and candid conversation. Oftentimes people think they're supposed to be hopeful, that there's sort of this fake and contrived hope around climate. And then there's all this talk about hope and what gives you hope. And, and um, you know, I interviewed recently, if you remember Eric Utney, um, he was, you know, the, the Utney reader was big back in, in the 90s. And he said he's now hope free. He's given up hope and he's kind of accepted that things are going a certain way. And that can sound quite dark, but it can also sound quite, quite liberating. So I think we need to have authentic conversations and not be afraid of the grief and depression and the darkness that is real and part of this. Because when we talk about fake hope, people sense it. And they smell it, and they sniff it, and it's and it's and it's not um, it's not effective. But I also agree with what Gina said earlier about listening. Um, don't try to persuade. Be judgmental. Listen, listen, listen. Build trust, uh, and do it in person, not on social media, because the incentive structures on social media uh, are to you know Twitter is a nuanced destruction machine. You know, and, and it just it just it pushes things to the extremes. That's where all the awards rewards are on social media, and that. That's not where climate nuance and complexity is best discussed. And just to add one more thing to the to that last question is this issue of um, climate resilience. I think is important because um, it, you're you're especially if you're trying to persuade somebody who's in that middle zone. And I agree actually with Connie that you know if they're in the far extreme, it's probably not worth your time to try to talk them around. But those people in the middle zone, um, they may not, you know, they may be concerned about, the, you know, giving up their um, SUV or their, um, you know, their lifestyle. Uh, but they may also be very worried about what they're seeing. And, um Talking about issues around disaster preparedness is, is a way to engage um, people. And I've certainly found that in rural California, the red parts of California, that people are very worried. And, they, um, and if, if they 
sort of engage around preparing for wildfires or uh, power, you know, power outages or heat waves or the many different crises that we're facing. Um, it's very easy to, to bridge from there to this broader issue of climate change and where it's taking us and the need to, um, well, it, it sort of brings you into a communitarian place. You have to be working with your community, with your neighbors, looking out for each other, helping each other, and trying to figure out how to um, get through this together. And it, um, it puts people in a mental space where they're then much more primed to the need to um, make changes to mitigate uh, greenhouse gases. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with so many of the points you made. Thank you all for answering that question. And I think one point that I thought was really interesting was how the minority that doesn't believe in climate change at all has their voice kind of amplified because they're the loudest. And I think that ties into my next question, which is around misinformation. I think misinformation, especially now, is more of an issue than ever before. And it connects to a lot of the topics that y'all just talked about. How do you suggest navigating or confronting climate communication breakdowns that stem from misinformation? There is a danger. There's a literature out there that if you repeat misinformation in order to refute it, um, it makes that misinformation, that myth, um, more prominent in memory. And over time, people are likely to come to believe it's more true if you repeat the myth to refute it. And so what you want to stick to is just the facts and make them, you know, that so often that the, the climate denial explanations are extremely simple and the science is complex. And we need to work to make the science as clear and as simple as we can without oversimplification that distorts it in order to make it easy to process because those middle segments that are not paying very much attention are not gonna put out the cognitive effort necessary to understand complex science. So we need to stick to the basics and repeat them, repeat them, repeat them like a soup commercial. Um, the techniques from marketing um, work in social marketing as well. We want simple, clear messages that are repeated often by a variety of trusted sources. And that's how we get past the misinformation. Um, there are lots of techniques that can be used. There's a, one message that is really effective is the scientific consensus that people do not understand the degree to which the scientific community agrees that human-caused climate change is happening. That 97% uh, figure, when people realize that that's true, we know from the experimental research that it increases their support for policy actions on climate change and their worry and their concern about the issue. Um, stories work. Um, uh, Gina had that wonderful slide with the, the uh, cartoon about co-benefits work. Um, surprising information sticks better um, if you can, um, what's his name? Um, I'm forgetting his first name, Rainey. 
Uh, he's at UC Berkeley. He's really wonderful in the ed department. And he has a whole collection of surprising facts that stick about climate change. Uh, yeah, I think that's a handful of ways of approaching it. <laughs> and, and I'd even say um, science is important. Facts are necessary and insufficient. And even skip the science. For a certain people, to meet people where they are, what they care about, what they value, um, I often can just skip through the science and, and speak to technology or to you know um, some of the solutions, which are good in their own right. And I think that there's a, a slide in there too about that. Um, and you know, sometimes for you know, uh, as, as Bob Inglis, who's you know founder of Republican, says, you know, you know, climate is like physics 101 and chemistry 101, and but you know, high school level science, well, a lot of people don't want to go back to that high school level science, and it wasn't enjoyable for them, with all due respect. So for a certain part of the population, you know, don't get hung up on the science, because I think certain people are like, the science, the science, the science, and try to ram it down people's throat. Um, in certain situations, bypass the science, go to values, go to solutions, uh, and things that, that, that people care about, and absolutely, repetition, repetition. How many times did we hear Saddam 9-11, Saddam 9-11? It wasn't true, but it's stuck in my brain for Forever and a lot of us, right? It's just that repetition, repetition, um, and and stories for sure. So, yeah. And just to add to that, um, you know, think about who you are and where your own expertise lies. And so, you know, for all of us who are not climate scientists, um, you know, I I don't try to engage on climate science. I, I know that's not my area, but um, you know my, my area is medicine and human health. And so I can talk you know, with some expertise about what excessive heat does to humans, what uh, you know, wildfire smoke does to human health, um, what um, you know, all of the other climate impacts, uh, you know, displacement, um, you know, the, the, um, the psychological effects, psychiatric effects of, um, of disasters, all of those kinds of things we can talk about in our field. So since, you know, this is a UCSF event, it just is really important to think about the power of talking about the, the, the areas that we have expertise in, in, in our community. I just want to echo that that is so important. What we we are seeing is that uh, health is one of the the uh, values that is held across the country, across all people, and that communicating about the health effects of climate change works with everyone and can be one of the ways of overcoming the political the pol sorry the polarization and the uh, political divide. Absolutely. And uh, Connie, I'd love to throw a quick clarification out you. One of, the, one of the people in the audience, Bridget, asked to confirm that she's understood the 97% reference. Are you saying that 97% of the scientific community agrees that climate change is real? 97% uh, of uh, climate scientists say 
And in some some uh, studies, it's been even more than 97%. Yes, that scientific consensus is there. And that's been uh, assessed in a, in a number of different ways with surveys, with literature reviews. Um, Though I think it's more than that climate change is real. It's that climate change is real and is man-made. Yeah, human caused. Human caused. Yeah. Great, thank you for clarifying. Um, and the chat has now blown up a little bit. Looks like we have a lot of great questions. We'll go for the first one that I see. Um, and I think this one is very relevant. How has the conversation regarded global warming changed at all, changed if at all during the pandemic? I think there's fascinating parallels between an invisible germ that is deadly and an invisible gas that is deadly. Um, and the, but the mechanisms of harm are very, very different, you know, touch a doorknob, you know, sneeze on someone, you know, you could kill someone, you, you could die. So it's very direct and personal. Whereas, um, the invisible gas goes into the air, something bad happens another time, another place. Um, and, but, you know, I think it's really interesting how we respond to these, um, these different threats that are indirect and direct. And clearly we've responded with three, you know, the U S government spent $3 trillion in a month on um on covid and if you used to be a trillion dollars was a lot of money we'd never think about spending a trillion dollars on climate oh no we can't do that it's too much et cetera. so we've seen that we can spend a lot of money fast when society uh deems it's necessary um and you've seen some of the same things about you know skepticism of science on whether it's covid or or science and it was interesting you know that the, the vaxxers anti-vaxxers are not the not the anti-climate people but i'm just fascinated by that by some of the parallels and differences about these two invisible uh, deadly um, threats that we face and how we've responded to them differently as individuals um, and, and as a society. It doesn't quite change you know, how the conversations change, but there's some interesting parallels though in terms of learning from what works. Um, and the idea that we can't afford to address climate, I think, um, you know, has, has been undermined somewhat by the COVID response. People can only worry about so many things at one time. I have been surprised, yeah. though, that climate change has not fallen off of the, the public agenda in the way I would have expected in the presence of COVID. People still care a lot um, and are paying attention. It, it has not fallen away like it did, um, fallen off the public agenda like it did back in 2010 uh, or 2009 with the recession. Yeah, I mean, 2020 has been such an insane year. And, um, you know, just sort of thinking from the California perspective about the, the, the sort of combination of COVID, the heat uh, stresses that we've been through and the wildfires um, and smoke events um, and the, the, kinds of dilemmas that people have faced about whether or not to evacuate, you know, their risk-risk trade-offs there and where to go if you are trying to evacuate. Um, and um, do you go to a cooling center during a heat wave, but there's a risk if you're at a cooling center. Um, and so, you know, all of these kinds of things have really made uh, climate change feel very real to people and have kept them kept it in the public eye and you know similarly in the gulf coast that just the unending parade of hurricanes um so is, you know i think 
this year would have been a year where climate change was front and center had there not been so many other things front and center. Um, but for those of us who work on in the area of cumulative impacts, um, seeing you know the issues around um, Black Lives Matter, climate change, a pandemic, all coming together um, and showing the you know the incredible fragility and vulnerability of um, you know really everything. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's been, I think, tough for, for a lot of people, um, for most people. Um, but it also, um, I think, has opened people's eyes to, to the, you know, the way that many of these issues do intersect and interact and pile on top of each other. Um, and I'm just sort of hoping that some of the... Um, more integrated solutions that that are out there will be um, considered when in the past they might not have been because they might have seemed too cross-cutting, too bold, too ambitious. Now I think there, you know, there are people who sort of see, oh well, we need things that are cross-cutting, bold, and ambitious. That's where we are. I wanted to share uh, just I a, a nice finding that, that came out of the climate change in the American mind, the most recent survey. This is data collected at the end of September and beginning of October. And the result is that eight in 10 Americans, it's 82% say that achieving 100% clean energy should be the primary goal of US energy policy. Um, and I just find that a really hopeful uh, result. Yeah. Most, most people, most Americans also support gun legislation. It, it doesn't happen because unfortunately the majority doesn't win in Congress. There's lots of cases where American people support things that Congress doesn't enact because of the, the, the hold that, that certain constituencies have on. Um, so I think that's encouraging, but, but, but just because something's popular doesn't mean it gets into policy, unfortunately, at least at the federal level. Sorry to be a downer, but it's, you know, popular policies don't win in Washington often. Wow. I think we all have our fingers and toes and everything we can cross, we have crossed. We're changing <laughs> about that uh, next week. Mm. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And I'd like to think that um, being popular with the public is at least where some change starts. So it's a, hopefully a good sign. Uh, I think we talked a lot about intersection in the response to the last question. And I'd love to ask or a question from the audience, which is um, if y'all could talk a little bit about the intersection between mental health and climate change as a health issue. I feel passionate about this. I certainly um, am not an expert on this, but they, you know, it's a big deal for people who are involved in it. And I think it's, there's a stigma, you know, about talking about it. And I've interviewed Eric Holthouse, who spoke very, he's a uh, meteorologist who spoke very openly about, you know, um, and others have too, about how depression that they struggle with. is kind of an occupational hazard. I think every climate activist needs a, needs a good therapist to, to, to deal with the, the, the professional burden that, that people carry. Um, and I think it's, it's a real risk for burnout. 
I think a lot of people in this field are carrying a lot of strain. I see it. You know, I've, you know, some of them have just Jim Hansen has stared at climate models so long that I, I can see see the dread in his face. Um, and I think it's a real burden. It's something we should talk about. And if you're in the field or if you're outside, because um, people are, um, I learn a lot from Renee Lertzman, who works in this area about, you know, engaging, being, you know, going into the grief. A lot of times we, in fact, I, I'll start some of my interviews with the grief, start on a downbeat, um, because rather than tiptoe around it, pretend it's not there, but to go right in it and start it and then work through it to the light. Um, and I think it's something we need to talk about but more and acknowledge because um, it's a professional um, risk and it's something that people are dealing with whether they recognize it or not. There's a brilliant book by Mary Pfeiffer that I love called The Green Boat in which she mm -hmm. talks about, she starts out with how depressed she is about climate change. And she, she lives in Nebraska and she became involved with Bold Nebraska, which was fighting the, um, the uh, Keystone Pipeline. And it was through her connection with other people and through activism that she built a sense of hope and a sense of engagement and dealt with the depression. And it's a really lovely example of how doing something can, um, can help us because, yeah, I'm depressed. <laughs> um, but most all of us on this phone call or on this uh, Zoom meeting are, are depressed. Um, but acting helps and connecting with other people helps. Thank you, Connie. That's absolutely right. That, um, that depression and anxiety are, you know, I think uh, among the biggest um, health impacts of climate change, um, along with uh, population displacement, and that they're just going to be pervasive going forward as we, um, you know, as communities deal with the impacts of climate change and as the world sort of wakes up to what's going on. Um, and so it's going to be not just those of us who are working in the field, but really something that's gonna be very widespread. And we've gotten a taste of that from COVID, which has certainly increased anxiety and depression in a dramatic way um, in the population. And the, the solution uh, you know, isn't uh, a prescription for an SSRI necessarily. It, <laughs> that can help in some cases, but um, the, the, the prescription is exactly what you said, Connie. It's agency, it's action. It is to take, to feel like you are able to take control of some aspect of your, um, your life and, um, and help or move forward something positive in some way. And I've seen that in community after community, um, you know, in, um, you know, the, after the the devastating wildfires in paradise, I mean, some of the people who were dealing with it best were the ones who were, you know, volunteering to sort um, clothes donations, the ones who were out looking for uh, lost animals, lost pets, the ones who were just, you know, out there tr trying to, um, in some way, 
help um, help make things better for the community. And that this is where I, you know I'm revealing my true colors on that scale of being communitarian versus individualistic is that you know we all, in my view, need to become more communitarian for our own mental health. Because if you are a, a fully individualistic, pull myself up by my own bootstraps kind of person in the future that we are going into, um, those people will not thrive um, because we're going to need each other. Uh, that it, it's, it's, it's fundamental in order to, um, to get through this. I think we could learn a lot from indigenous people in that regard. I, I spoke with a farmer this week who's a part black, part indigenous. And he said, you know, all you white people, this is your first existential crisis. You're freaked out about climate change. But if you're black or Native American, you faced, they faced similar, you know, existential crises with, with villains with an intent to inflict harm for centuries. And he's like, this this isn't new to us. We've seen this before. We've endured it. And I think those people that often aren't part of the conversation could could teach us all about collective and communitarian, as well as um, coping with um, stress and trauma, because they've um, endured more than um, privileged people have, for sure. A lot to learn there. I couldn't agree more with um, all the points you said. And I think one thing that I really want to drive or kind of um, and on is just reiterating the importance of community. I think myself and a lot of people, uh, a lot of my peers feel a lot of anxiety when we open up our phones every other week and read some terrifying headline or read the news and continue to see terrifying headlines. Um, but I think communities, especially ones that we create even transiently through panels like this are so, so important. And I think hearing all of you speak and hearing all of your wisdom has been really really enlightening, encouraging. So thank you all. And with that, I'll hand it over to Catherine. Well, we're so grateful to all of our speakers this evening and to Ellen, our moderator, for a terrific discussion. Thank you for everyone, to everyone for staying late. I think we could go on and on just because this is so important and really relevant to our lives. Um, I've been so impressed uh, just as an, inside, as an aside working with our medical students at UCSF. Um, they are looking at this future and confronting it head on, but not in a narrow way. They're really trying to learn as much as possible. And you all have enlightened us this evening in the importance of how we communicate with people. Thank you for joining us tonight and for engaging in a wonderful discussion. Um, good night, everybody. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.